Thank you very much. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's Council on Foreign Relations Transition 2021 series meeting, the first 100 days and beyond with Richard Haas. Um, I'm David Rubenstein, the co-founder and co-executive chair of the Carlisle Group and also chairman of the board of directors of the Council on Foreign Relations, and I'll be presiding at today's discussion. Uh, the meeting is the first of the Council on Foreign Relations Transition 2021 series, which examines the major issues confronting the Biden-Harris administration in the foreign policy area. I will spend about a half hour in conversation with Richard Haas, who's the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, and then at 5.30, we'll begin to have questions uh, from all of you who are uh, part of this uh, dialogue. I would also like to point out that this is on the record. So um, this is uh, something that there is media that's paying attention to this, and obviously we have a fair number of members, so I want to make sure everybody knows that what you say and what you ask is on the record, as are everything that we say. Okay, so Richard, let's start. Um, Richard, uh, to the, event, the events of today are obviously something in, in etched in everybody's mind right now and probably will be for some time, if not our lifetime. What do you think the reaction is going to be overseas when, when countries read about this and see this, and they've, they've no doubt seen it live, what do you think the reaction is going to be about our country overseas? Well, David, you know, the first thing to say is that everyone will see it. Uh, the old line, the whole world is watching, that will, that will apply here. Uh, I think a good chunk of the world, particularly our democratic allies, will be appalled, uh, but also worried about what it might portend for us. I think some of the world will feel a sense of schadenfreude, uh, particularly the more authoritarian uh, regimes around the world, because uh, this will make it uh, incredibly difficult for us to uh, lecture them or put pressure on them by our example. Indeed, they will use this as justification for their own authoritarian uh, tendencies. Uh, I think for allies, it will sap the trust that is at the core of, a, of an alliance. I, I worry that some foes might be tempted to say, is this a moment we can take advantage of the uh, disorder, the disarray inside the uh, United States. There's, there's no upside, David. Uh, this is at a minimal, you know, this has put a, an end to the, any notion of American exceptionalism. It shows that what has happened in other places, democratic backsliding, we're not immune from it. It can happen here. It is to some extent happening uh, here. And I think it just makes it that much more difficult for us to be an effective actor on the world stage. And I expect we'll get to it because it's not simply now the images we're projecting, but it's the domestic reality. This is going to require now uh, an inward looking era for the United States where we are going to have to begin with uh, not just dealing with the immediate problem, the order problem, but uh, how did we get to this point? What do we do about it? And this is, shall we say, not the only issue on the, on the agenda. So this has suddenly become an extraordinarily uh, difficult moment. In, uh, in the history of this country. As we were talking about before we started this program, the last time that something like this happened was when the British invaded 1814 and they burned the Capitol and the White House and so forth. Nothing like this has ever happened before other than that incident, is that right? No, that's right in terms of uh, the, the siege of our, our, our government. And I think the comparisons you know, will be either to the events early in the 19th century that you just cited or to the, the Civil War. Uh, but again, we, you know, we, we thought we were immune from things like this. And you know, what we've learned and we're learning the hard way is we're not. So um, you have no doubt though, that on January 20th, Joe Biden will be sworn in as president of the United States. Nothing is gonna interfere with that. Is that correct in your view? That is correct. I don't know what the physical ceremony will be like and that was already in doubt because of COVID. But no, there will be a transfer of power, given what happened, what's happening now. It won't be quite the peaceful transfer of power that, that's, that up to now had been our tradition. But yes, Joe Biden will become the 46th president of the United States on January 20. Before we get into the transition, I'd just like to give you an opportunity to talk about two things relating to the outgoing administration. If you were to make a debate, in a debate, you were given the task of saying this is what the Trump administration did good in foreign policy, what would be the one or two things that you would cite as good things that they did in foreign policy? The two, two most important things, let's say, or three. Well, I could mention a few things that they 
did well, though, at the risk of prejudicing what I'm going to say, uh, I don't think it's uh, it offsets the things that have gone wrong, which maybe we'll get to as well. But I would say they, they get points and they will get points for having reset the conversation about China, uh, seeing it more skeptically, its use of power at home and abroad. They will get some, uh, I think, credit for having uh, initiated arms transfers to uh, Ukraine, uh, given their situation vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Uh, the trade agreement with Mexico and Canada, uh, getting that approved by Congress was an important uh, development. The continued improvement in relations with uh, India, and obviously also the normalization of relations between Israel and several of her neighbors. So I, th I think you know, all of those will be seen as uh, pluses. What would you say are the two or three biggest failures of the foreign policy of the Trump administration? Well, I would say the two biggest failures are not normally thought of as foreign policy, but they will have enormous foreign policy consequences. One is the inept handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the other is what we were just talking about, the deterioration, the degrading of the American, of American democracy. And all of that uh, has tremendous implications as we were just discussing for how we are seen in the world and our ability to be influential in the world. In more narrow foreign policy ways, I think the, the biggest criticism will be that almost like healthcare, this administration disrupted without replacing. And there was a disruption of alliances. There was the pulling back from any number of international agreements or institutions. And in virtually none of those cases was something uh, better or enduring put in their, their place. So all sorts of situations as a result have left the United States with less influence, say on global health or on climate change, or in cases like pulling out of the Iran agreement and so forth, we have a situation that has deteriorated. Okay, so um, you know uh, Joe Biden from your experience in government. Um, he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, vice president of the United States for eight years. What type of foreign policy uh, perspectives does he tend to bring to the table when he is articulating things in the foreign policy or national security area? I think his biggest instinct, David, almost his default option, and it'll be a big contrast with this administration, is multilateralism, uh, working with allies. That's, his, that's how he sets the table for, for America's relationship uh, with the world, for American foreign policy. It's a rejection of uh, unilateralism. It's a rejection of political military isolationism. Uh, so I think that essentially, so he, implicit in that is he believes in American involvement in the world. He's an internationalist. And his instinct is wherever possible to, to work with others, particularly Europeans, uh, also our partners and allies in Asia to deal with the various uh, problems at hand. Now the transition so far has had its ups and downs because of the uh, lack of cooperation of the outgoing administration. How much does that handicap the new team coming in in the national security and foreign policy area? Look, it obviously slows things down because you, you don't exactly know what it is you're inheriting. I think some of the areas that could be most consequential is we, I do not believe that the incoming administration has anything close to a comprehensive understanding of the president's conversations with many of his foreign counterparts. And I'm not sure he's, Mr. Biden will ever get an accurate readout of uh, this president's conversations with Vladimir Putin or, or others, particularly in those instances where there were not uh, staff in the, uh, in, in the room. So I, I think that might be ultimately the most problematic. My, my, my hope is that there's been enough contacts, though again, not as many as there should be, uh, with uh, the permanent bureaucracy, with civil servants that people have, un you know, have learned some things. Also, I think it's important to point out that the people who are on the transition, who are going to have senior roles in the new government, David, they're all experienced. They've been obviously following all the issues. So again, you know, as someone who's been involved on in both sides of a transition, there's a level of detail that you never get as an outsider. So uh, there's no upside to the fact that this has not been, if you will, uh, a cooperative transition. What I can't, what I can't exactly scale for you, is is just what a what what how much of a downside this this uh, this will be. But whatever it is, my sense is in the first couple of weeks, uh, I think uh, they will they will get over it. And say one other thing, 
the fact that the Senate now seems like it will be 50-50 Democrats in control should, could well speed up the process of confirmations. And you could see people getting into place sooner than it would have been the case otherwise. What would you say should be and are likely to be the highest one or two or three priorities of the new administration in foreign policy area? Well, my answer probably won't surprise you, you know, since I'm someone who once wrote a book, Foreign Policy Begins at Home. I think a lot of the domestic issues, getting COVID-19 under control, uh, unless we do that, like you, you work in the world of finance, I don't see how our economy, the real economy gets, gets back to where it needs to be with people at work. Uh, unless we get COVID under control, we can't set an example of competence to the, to the rest of the world. We simply won't have the bandwidth to do a lot. And then I think what we're, what's happening today, we've got to, again, we can't resolve those issues any more than we can resolve issues of race and so forth in matters of weeks or months, but we've got to set ourselves on a course to address them uh, productively. In terms of what you might call more traditional foreign policy, I would think there'll be an awful lot of allied consultations You'll see re-entry into things like the WHO, the Paris uh, uh, Climate Agreement. I think those would be the priorities. I try to draw the distinction in an article I wrote for our magazine for foreign affairs about between repair, uh, which some of the things you've got to deal with immediately, and innovation down the road. The one area where the administration may not have, though, that luxury might be Iran where given that uh, the steps Iran is taking to break out of the uh, 2015 nuclear agreement, there may be a time pressure that, that you won't see, say, dealing with North Korea or dealing with China or, or some other countries. Now, the new Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, is somebody I presume you know reasonably well. Um, how do you think he will fare as Secretary of State? And is his strength that he really knows the president extremely well? He's got two real strengths going into the job. One is he's got a, a long and close relationship with the president of the United States. It's, it's essential uh, that as Secretary of State, when he speaks or she speaks, people see that as an authoritative voice. It's, it's deadly if, if that is not the uh, perception. Plus, Tony Blinken knows the building. And that's essential now because he's inheriting a broken State Department and a broken Foreign Service. So one of his uh, priorities over the next presumably four years, will be to, to, to address that, but the, the human, if you will, the human capital side of, uh, of diplomacy. So I think those are his two advantages, in addition to being somebody who's obviously experienced with the uh, issues. He's not coming out of a different world, stop it, suddenly stepping into the foreign policy world. Now, the Secretary of Defense designate uh, General Austin needs a approval from the Congress, both houses of Congress, because he needs a waiver, because he hasn't been out of the military for 10 years or more. Do you think that will happen? And do you have a view on him as a potential Secretary of Defense? I think it's likely to happen. Uh, I don't think it's 100% certain. What happened in Georgia probably increases the uh, chance it, it will happen. But again, I don't think it's uh, uh, a, done, a, a done deal. I think it's, you know, I think given his background, he's obviously had command a lot of experience in the Middle East. I think you know, the, the, the two question marks are one, was it necessary given the other potential candidates to, to bring somebody in from the military side so soon after he retired from active service? Was that a, a norm or a tradition we wanted to uh, challenge? Was it essential? And a lot of people would say as good of a man as General Austin is, uh, the circumstances didn't, didn't necessitate it. And second of all, a lot of his experience has been in places like the Middle East and so forth, the greater Middle East. And a big part of the job is, uh, it's two big parts of the job. One is obviously the management job side and the other is, is dealing with China and with Asia. And that's not, the, you know, and particularly China is not something that he specialized on, but this is a talented person of, of serious capacity. And you know, my hunch is, you know, I, I, you know, I'm confident that if he does get confirmed, he, uh, he, he you know, he will, uh, be more than able to, to handle what's coming at him. Now, Jake Sullivan will be the national security advisor. He's, uh, I think, 43 years old, like, like one of the youngest people ever to have that job. Uh, do you think that's too young for that job? You've seen uh, some of the people up close who've had it, like Brent Scowcroft. And uh, what is the strength that uh, Jake Sullivan brings to the table? I don't think it's it, it's too young because he's, he, again, he's, he, one, he's, he's razor smart. 
and two, he's, he's experienced, and three, he's got a good relationship with his boss, and he's also got a good relationship with his colleagues, and that's really important. Uh, this is a job where you know, you've got to wear two hats. You've got to be the counselor to the president and advisor, but your first hat is to be a coordinator, an honest broker, someone who knows how to make the trains run, who can see that implementation matches decision-making, and that's why you want someone who's experienced and gets along with his with his colleagues. So the fact that people like Tony Blinken and, and Jake Sullivan and others have a history of working together and working together closely, I think is a positive sign. Now, the special advisor to the president on uh, climate change is John Kerry. Um, that's a cabinet level position. His previous deputy when he was secretary of state was Tony Blinken. Is it going to be awkward for Blinken to be the Secretary of State and theoretically a more important position than the one that Kerry has? And how is that going to work out? I think more important than that is how do you balance uh, a narrow focus with a global focus? Let me just sort of talk about it this way. When I worked in the State Department several times, you had certain bureaus that had a, a writ that was about a single issue, say human rights or arms control or, or, or what have you. And then you had geographical bureaus. And there was often tension between the two because now, as you might expect, those who had narrow, a narrow responsibility saw that as the central or pivotal issue. And the question was, how do you balance that off against other concerns? And I think that'll be the challenge for this administration, particularly with climate, because climate is increasingly going to be everywhere. It's not going to be a narrow box called climate, but climate-related questions are potentially going to be part of trade conversations, uh, our relations with, uh, with, with allies. Obviously, there's a big domestic component. So I think the challenge will be one of how do you integrate this in a, in a, in a way that on one hand gets the importance of climate right, but also understands that with certain countries, we've got other issues say with China, regardless of what it is they choose to do vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, climate change. Now, one of the comments that has been made is that uh, the president-elect has picked people who either worked in the Obama administration or people that he knows extremely well. Uh, no fresh blood, nobody he doesn't know well. Is that a fair criticism? Well, I think the, the proof will be in the pudding. It's not a team of rivals, it's a team. And you know, the good news is that you'll, I expect you'll see relatively little leaking, re relatively little uh, controversy or friction, which can be a real uh, sponge of, of time and, and energy. The question is, how do you resist groupthink? How do you introduce innovation and so forth? And that'll be the, that'll be the challenge for this administration and whether they can reach out and whether these people, you know, Kissinger's old line that when you come into government, you know, you basically you come in with your intellectual capital and then you deplete it. So, you know, the question I think will be in many cases, have they brought in uh, adequate intellectual capital to be as innovative as we're going to need to, to, to be to deal with this rather extraordinary uh, inbox that Mr. Uh, Mr. Biden didn't ask for, but he's inheriting. For many years since World War II, the most dominant country in Europe was the United States, effectively. Um, has that changed now because of so much concern by European leaders about the United States' willingness to play that role in the future, or do you think Biden can repair that? It's a good question, David. I think he can repair it in part, but there were already doubts in the minds of Europeans because of the Obama and particularly Trump presidencies. And I think the events of today will exacerbate and reinforce those doubts that this America is different. And even if Joe Biden is a familiar American foreign policy hand who the Europeans know, for example, from the Munich Security Conference, one of the questions in the back of their minds is going to be, well, what happens in four years? Is, uh, is, is Could Trumpism return, be it with Trump or some other uh, Republican? So I think the, the, the problem is that the United States is not seen the way it was. We've been seen in a certain way now for what, 70 odd years, 75 years. And I think that there's now been an interruption in that. And I think President Biden will simply have to deal with that reality. And I think he can reassure up to a point by his deeds at home and abroad. But some of the doubts now are, are things he can't reassure about because they're doubts about the country, the doubts about our politics that go beyond what even uh, the 46th president will be able to address. Do you think there is any realistic way to put the Iranian agreement in a revised form back together again, or is that genie out of the bottle? I'm skeptical, to be uh, honest. Uh, 
I'm not sure the United States and Iran can agree on the details of, of doing so, exactly what would have to happen with what timing and, and what sequence. I'll also tell you that uh, even though I think it was an error to get out of the agreement unilaterally, I think the agreement itself is a flawed agreement. And I think too many of the deadlines or durations in the agreement are, are set to expire relatively soon in five or 10 uh, years on the, on the nuclear side. So I'm not sure it's the best path to take. That said, the president-elect says uh, he's going to try it. Jake Sullivan said the other day on Fareed Zakaria's show that that was their initial approach. So I think they're going to take a run at it. I'm not sure it's uh, possible. And if not, where I hope they end up is with something more uh, implicit with Iran, essentially an arrangement, not a formal agreement, where Iran understands what to use an old phrase, the red lines are. And what we may have to think about is, is some selective relaxation of sanctions to achieve a kind of informal tacit uh, modus vivendi with Iran in, in this area to buy time until we could come up with a longer term, more formal agreement. Now, uh, the United States has had under the Trump administration a very close relationship with the Saudi uh, royal family. Do you think that will continue under uh, President Biden or how will the Saudis approach the U.S. relationship in this uh, new, new setting? Look, it's going to be tough because there's a, you know, some real differences, obviously, over human rights. And we've seen that flash up in the last couple of weeks when the Saudis arrested a human rights activist. Uh, there's still differences over Yemen. There's differences potentially about what kind of approach to take to Iran. What could be the wild card in all this, David, and I'm trying to think it all through, is what the Saudis do vis-a-vis -vis Israel. That is, you know, Saudi Arabia now is the principal Sunni Arab country not to have normalized with Israel. Saudi Arabia has reasons for not doing so. Obviously some internal disagreement in the, in the uh, kingdom, it's got a special place in the Islamic world. On the other hand, if Saudi Arabia were to do it, it could uh, obviously have real implications in a positive way for their relationship uh, with, with, with us. And what I've been thinking about is, is there a way the Saudis could approach normalization with Israel? And just as the UAE said, we'll only do it if you take annexation off the table. Well, what might be the Saudi conditions vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian issue, say vis-a-vis -vis settlements or something else that could actually have a, a positive impact uh, on the uh, region? So I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult relationship above all for the human rights reasons. But I do think this area of dealing with Israel and the Palestinian issue is worth watching. Now, um, one of the great mysteries of the, of the Trump administration foreign policy to many people has been the unwillingness to say anything negative about Russia and or Putin by the president. What is your theory about why that was the case? And do you have any view on whether the US and Russia can come together in some agreements on some nuclear arms agreements or other things? Look, I'm aware of all the, the theories I don't have uh, any evidence for supporting one or another. I'll just sort of say I can't discern a clear foreign policy or national security rationale for our approach to, to, to Mr. Putin over the last four uh, years. It was almost a split at times, David, between the president's policy and the administration's policy, because the administration did do certain things that were fairly robust towards uh, Russia in terms of sanctions, Ukraine, some strengthening of uh, NATO. I think... Uh, for the short run, the goal, it's, it's going to be complicated to pull off. On one hand, there's a real incentive to reach an extension of the new so-called New START nuclear agreement. I don't think it's in anyone's interest to have a new round of nuclear competition between the United States and Russia. But this is going to have to take place against the backdrop of Russia trying to kill dissidents, what it's doing in Ukraine, what it's doing in the Middle East, and most recently, what it's doing to us vis-a-vis -vis the, the hack. So how the administration is going to basically, it's going to, be, it's going to be tricky foreign policy, how you can on one hand try to stabilize the nuclear relationship in a larger context where I think the relationship is going to become much more combative. That will be the, the challenge for, for the administration. Now, why uh, do you think the Chinese leadership is happy with the turn of events that there's a new president or you think they actually uh, figured out how to deal with Trump and they actually wanted him to be reelected? I think both. Uh, I think on one hand, uh, they look forward to a more traditional, predictable United States. The danger for them is that a more traditional, predictable United States could also be a more critical United States and a more effective United States. I also think, by the way, that for all the differences we're going to see between 
the two administrations here between the 45th and 46th president, I think there'll be certain elements of continuity in China. There's been a real change in the collective mindset here, if you will, in the foreign policy community about how to think about China. And I think there's a widespread view that what China's doing in Hong Kong and vis-a-vis the Uyghurs and so forth uh, merits a very strong response. People are worried about their military buildup, worried about what they have been saying and doing in the South China Sea or vis-a-vis Taiwan, obviously unhappy with aspects of their economic behavior. Obviously, there's the view that the integration into the world economic system did not bring about either uh, opening up of the Chinese economy or opening up of its political system. So disillusionment, if you will, with China is is widespread. So uh, I think the challenge here, not unlike the challenge with Russia, David, though this is in some ways much more consequential, will be how do we protect potential limited areas of, of cooperation with China in a context where the overall relationship will be highly uh, competitive and we've got some very strong disagreements. You think that Kim Jong-un will be sending love letters to Joe Biden or they have to do a lot more dating before that'll happen? <laughs> uh, I, I, my hunch is he wants to, he wants to get some attention. Uh, if he doesn't get attention, he may be tempted to do what I used to call station identification on his part, launch some missile or whatever. But I thought it was really interesting the other day that he gave a speech in North Korea, and it was a rare admission of how bad things had gotten that uh, from COVID to the economy. And he basically was saying that uh, our, we've not even come close to meeting our goals. And that was a rare moment of a public acknowledgement on his part of, of failure. So it's possible that you know, we do have some openings and what the way I describe things with Iran, I can imagine a situation not where we in the short run try to denuclearize North Korea, that's a non-starter, but we can't ignore it. So whether we could introduce some element, some, some, something that I would call a, a something for something relationship where we get areas of restraint that we can monitor in exchange for some slight uh, some some areas where we do a selective reduction of of sanctions. I think that something like that is not inconceivable. And an interesting question uh, to me is whether COVID might offer something of an opportunity for that. And with some of these countries with whom we have terrible relations like North Korea, historically, whether there could be some COVID related reaching out and we could help uh, once we get our own house in order with vaccines and the like, whether we could offer certain things on a humanitarian basis that might buy us some time politically. Uh, We've had a special relationship with England for quite some time, obviously, but now the leader of uh, the UK is somebody that was uh, ideologically more in sync with President Trump, you might say. Do you think that Boris Johnson will be able to establish a, quote, special relationship with Joe Biden? I think Boris Johnson has his, his hands full at home. Uh, The COVID situation in in the UK has gone from bad to worse. Uh, I was never a fan of Brexit, as you uh, know, and the the final, you know, the agreement that was finally announced the other day, I don't see results that in any way warranted what had happened. But I do think at some point it's going to threaten the integrity of the UK itself, beginning with Scotland, potentially with Northern uh, Ireland. I think the one positive thing might be between uh, the UK and ourselves might be in the area of trade, that uh, you could have something uh, there. But uh, but I actually think the UK has diminished its importance and the importance of the so-called special relationship with the US by opting out of Europe. Because right now the UK can only deliver itself. It's no longer an important partner of the United States in the deliberations in, in Europe. So I actually think it's, in a funny sort of way, what, what, what Brexit has done is downgraded the significance of uh, what was a, a special relationship. So uh, why do you think at the end of the administration, it's considering labeling uh, Cuba as a terrorist nation? Uh, why, with uh, two weeks to go, is that likely to happen or possibly going to happen? Uh, look, I haven't seen that Cuba's done anything you know, markedly different in the last few weeks. It's, it's problematic in, in, in all sorts of ways. And we still haven't had a good explanation of what they were doing that was causing those health uh, consequences for our, our, our people uh, there. I don't know to what extent this is about domestic politics here, uh, David, because it, be it will be well received in certain communities to tie the hands of the new uh, administration. But uh, you know, this has not been a big priority for the last four years. So the fact that it's happening now, you know, always danger to uh, 
speculate as to motives, but I don't see foreign policy rationale for changing US policy at this stage in an administration, uh, given that there hasn't been a major new development in the, uh, recently. Final question before we take questions from our members. Um, you've been in administrations that have been in power. You've been on transitions on in, going in and going out. Is it more fun going in and transition? Do you think you're going to change the world or more fun leaving because you think, hey, finally, I don't have to worry about every problem in the world uh, every, in the middle of the night? <laughs> well, all things being equal, it's more fun going in because that suggests your side won the election. Though I will say when you go in, it can be quite overwhelming at times. I remember my first day at the National Security Council. This is 1989 when I uh, went into the... Uh, Bush 41 administration. I literally showed up at the old executive office building in my office and the files were all empty. Why? Because all the documents have been taken off, boxed, and they were going off to the Reagan uh, library. And this was, and all the people had gone. They had now moved on to their new lives because they weren't going to be working where they had been. And so you literally start on day one with empty file drawers. There's no one there to tell you what, you know, how to, how to do what it is you're meant to do. So it can be quite it's quite a moment of, of a little bit. You feel like the, the dog that caught the, the fender, that is something you'd worked on for a long time. You wanted your team to win. And suddenly you realize the difference between campaigning and governing. Leaving, um, you know, on one hand, you're exhausted. You know what it's like to lose, a, you know, to work for a one-term president. You did it for Mr. Carter. Uh, I did it uh, for, again, Bush uh, 41. That way, you know, on one hand, you're physically beat. On the, on the other hand, you know, you're so frustrated over what could and might have been had you had four more uh, years. So it's uh, all things being much more fun going in than going out. Okay, so let's have questions from our members now. Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder to ask a question, please click on the raise hand icon on your Zoom window. When you are called on, please accept the unmute now button and identify yourself with your affiliation before asking your question. To view the roster of CFR members registered for this meeting, please click on the link in your Zoom chat box. We'll take the first question from David Petraeus. Richard, um, obviously the priority uh, for the administration has to be the US-China relationship. Uh, when it comes to foreign, it will first be pandemic, the economy, the democracy at home and all of that. But then it's the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, it'll be much more multilateral. It'll be comprehensive, integrated, uh, and so forth. And that'll be the biggest plate. But there are going to be a number of other plates uh, that will have to be kept spinning as well. And, and among those will be the plates of the endless wars, which uh, many of the participants in the new administration will have tried to end in the past. They did end one and then had to reinitiate uh, our presence. Um, how do you see the new administration, could they acknowledge that you actually can't end endless wars, you can end our participation in them, but that doesn't necessarily end them, and that we could actually have a fairly uh, dire outcome in Afghanistan, uh, it may be that we have withdrawn too many forces, uh, and you know, you could actually see a collapse in Afghanistan of the Afghan security forces, I don't think that in Iraq you could see uh, real problems in Syria uh, if that ever got out of control again. Could you envision this administration that, of course, they had to run on saying we must end endless wars, um, but recognizing that, again, we may need to continue our participation in the endless wars. We have interest there still. Mm -hmm. uh, and the alternative, if we actually withdraw from them, is that they not only continue, but they get worse. How, how do you see them addressing this? It's a, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good question. It's one I've wrestled with, uh, David. I actually think there is a decent chance uh, that we will stay in Afghanistan. I expect, like you, I'm not a great fan of the phrase endless or forever war. Uh, if we call it open-ended presence, it sounds a little bit better. Uh, and that's what we've had throughout Europe and Asia for you know, more than half a century uh, now. The costs in Afghanistan for us are very low for staying. The costs, as you suggest, and I fear you're right, could be quite high if we were to, uh, to leave, both to the Afghans, but also potentially to ourselves, if it again became a, a venue where terrorism could be mounted. Uh, 
I am not a fan of the uh, U.S. Taliban agreement that was signed almost uh, a, a year ago now. It seems to me it's a U.S. withdrawal agreement, not a peace agreement. Uh, it might be hard for the administration to rip it up, but it might not be that hard for the administration to basically hold it up to the light and say, we can't, we're not doing any more withdrawals because the Taliban are not living up to the letter and spirit of this uh, agreement. And I also think uh, they don't necessarily have to introduce more forces on a, on a permanent basis, on a stationing basis. That might be politically tough. But again, as you know better than I do, one could have a situation where we keep a few thousand people there all the time, which is the current level. And then we regularly uh, introduce forces for several months at a time. So we, the actual numbers in real terms don't go down that much. We could also increase certain types of long-term support for the Afghan military. So my guess is there's a way of working this one out. And I, and I actually think this could be an area also of some bipartisanship. Uh, it's an old fashioned word and today's an odd day to mention it, but I think it's, it, it's possible. So I think there will be some Republicans who will harbor exactly the same concerns you do there. I think it's harder to see us getting more involved in some Middle Eastern countries to re-enter certain things in, in Syria that I, 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 I don't see. So I think there in, in, in the Syria's, Yemen's, Libya's, what have you, I think our approach will be much more uh, diplomatic. There could be a limited counterterrorism uh, thing, some limited supply to certain actors. But I, I think Afghanistan, there's a, a decent chance that uh, we would stay. In terms of Iraq, that I, I don't know. I haven't heard much talk about it. Uh, but again, um, my guess is um, I wouldn't be surprised if a version of where we are is a version of where we end up being sometime down the road. We'll take the next question from Franklin Moore. Okay, I think I've unmuted. You have. Thank you. Um, for the last 250 years, the United States face in Europe and in the world has been of European Americans. That certainly is true of the last 75 years as we've built alliances. Given that there is a push to increase the role of brown and black people that come from cultures that are non-European, does this put pressure on us to look at allies overseas in some different perspective? Well, the United States has been heavily involved in various theaters because that's where our interests were most found that's where they were most challenged. For much of the 20th century, it was obviously in uh, Europe and, and Asia. And the United States, by the way, has maintained a heavy presence and commitment to Asia, even though there's not as much, I don't know what the word is, ethnic uh, connection as there might've been or might be to uh, Europe, but it was for various strategic and economic uh, uh, reasons. We've gotten heavily involved in the Middle East, not for anything to do with, uh, I think, for ethnic reasons, but again, it's simply been the way that post-Cold War American foreign policy has, has played out, either reacting to local events or in some cases initiating events in, in, in that part of the world. I, I, th I, I would think the bigger challenge will be persuading the American people, regardless of and their backgrounds on the importance of America staying involved in the world at a time we face these enormous challenges at home from COVID to the political division, to, uh, to race, to infrastructure, to inequality, to public schooling, to healthcare, to you, you name it. And I think for President Biden, uh, who believes in America being involved in the world, the question is going to be, how do you, how do you make the case not for overreach abroad, not for trying to remake the world, but to avoid underreach. How do you continue to make the case in a way that persuades that we need to stay involved in the world to a considerable degree and, and why we can do that and still face or still address our shortcomings and needs here at home. And I think that will be the needle he will have to uh, thread, but I don't think it'll break down for the most part along lines that are related to color or race or religion or, or, or background. 
We'll take the next question from Khalil Bird. Hi there, Khalil Bird, Invest America. It's good to be on with both of you. Thanks for the conversation. I'm thinking about uh, Janet Yellen, Anthony Blinken, and Powell coming into a meeting and telling the President Biden once he's inaugurated what the international priorities are. And I think this question is probably for both of you. What is the list that they lay out for the new president to focus on um, from their three particular points of view? What is their shared list that you think the United States should focus on? Well, David, do you want to take that first since it's more your, your purview? Now, I would say that uh, getting, as Richard said, we've got to get COVID under control because until COVID is completely under control, the economy is not going to come back to the level that we want. My fear is that around the world right now, the, in, when history is written, it will be seen that during the Trump years, China became the dominant economy in the world, not yet in GDP, certainly in purchase price parity, but they are the economy that is growing at a much faster clip than we are and probably are accelerating much more than we can. And I feel that many people around the world are going to talk to China much more than they did before about help and assistance and so forth. So I would say that uh, if I were the Secretary of Treasury, I would want to make sure the health situation is getting as much under control as possible so we can get the economy going again, try to deal with allies who have maybe looking uh, more at China than they were before. And, and then one thing I would like to send a message to is I hope somebody who's actually been in the business world who's met a payroll, built a company, um, uh, would join the administration. Right now, there hasn't been anybody appointed yet who really has been an entrepreneur or business person. I, I hope that they will get somebody, uh, not from the private equity world, I, I'm not a candidate, but somebody who really uh, can bring a business voice to it and can speak to business people around the world about what the administration is doing in that area. Richard? The one thing I'd say is, uh, one is I think we need a competitiveness strategy. I think there's too much an obsession about what China's doing. In many cases, we can only have a limited effect on China's trajectory. We can have an almost unlimited effect on our own trajectory. And that, that requires us to really think hard and then double down on the, on the drivers of American competitiveness. That gets you into such things as a smart immigration policy, which we have uh, abandoned. We've got to think about the level of federal spending on basic research, which is what roughly 50 or 60% of our, our traditional levels. So we can go you know, down infrastructure. There's so many things we can and should do if we are going to get, and by the way, this isn't a good time to do it because we're coming out of a COVID induced recession. There's things with green technology we obviously should be emphasizing and, and we obviously will that are a twofer. They will help us economically and they will help us in climate. The one area I'm not sure the administration is going to be looking to enough that I would emphasize, uh, I'm not sure you mentioned this individual, would be trade. And whether given the politics of trade here at home, we are going to have a sufficiently uh, ambitious trade policy. And I think it has also potential uh, politically, economically, as an engine of economic growth, and potentially if climate concerns are introduced as a way to promote our goals in that area. And I worry that it won't get the priority it deserves. We'll take the next question from Janine Hill. Janine, please accept the unmute now button. I'm not asking a question, sorry. No problem. We'll take the next question from Hari Hari Haran. Uh, thank you. Uh, this is a question for, for both of you. Uh, in terms of the tension between the progressives in the Democratic Party and, and the centrists, if you will, uh, how do you see this play out in the realms of economic policy like taxation? I mean, is, is this going to be a sock the rich and spend a lot? Or how is it going to play out? Well, let me take an initial stab at this. Um, I do think that you'll see the Republicans being more worried about the, the deficit than they have been in the last four years. Uh, the deficit did grow up dramatically and the debt's gone up dramatically. And I suspect that the Republicans in the Senate will try to block a lot of spending programs uh, or stimulus programs that the administration might propose. Uh, secondly, the administration, I think, will try to do much more for people who are in the economic uh, underclass 
than maybe the current administration did. I think that will get through the House, but I'm not sure it's going to get through the Senate quite as readily as uh, the administration would like. And I think the uh, third is the administration um, needs to make certain that its economic team is as unified as I think the foreign policy team is. Very often we've seen administrations that the economic policy team, like the foreign policy team, is uh, at each other's throats from time to time. I, at this point, the entire economic team hasn't been put together. The Secretary of Commerce uh, hasn't been designated and so forth. But I hope that the team uh, can prevent, present a unified front and, and, and try to get one or two things through, trying to get too many things through, as my administration did uh, in the Carter administration years uh, in the economic policy area, is not likely to work. You've got to concentrate on one or two things, make it the highest priorities, and that's what I think they need to do in the beginning. Richard? I think we're actually entering an era where there could be something of a paradigm shift where we're looking for a larger role of the government in the, in the economy. And I think we'll see it to some extent in taxes. We'll see it also the, in degree of a safety net. And in some ways, I, I almost think that coming out of COVID, we're, we're backdooring our way into a form of a universal base, basic income. Uh, but I, so I think that we're, we're entering an era where rather than the era, no one's going to be saying the era of big government is over, but rather the, the era of bigger government has, has arrived. Now the details are gonna to have to be worked out. And as David suggests, there'll be compromises and, and, and to be made here. Uh, and all this for the, at least for the foreseeable future is gonna be carried out against the situation of, of, of low rates. Uh, but, um, but, I, but I think all things being equal, I would think the general trajectory of the, of the economy is a, is a larger role for the government. And probably we will continue to rack up significant amounts, amounts of debt. We'll take the next question from James Gilmore. Well, Richard, thank you very much. I've, uh, I'm enjoying this very much. As you know, I'm ambassador to OSCE uh, on behalf of the United States. And we've taken a pretty tough line uh, versus the Russians and their policies uh, in Vienna. Uh, you described, and, and now we know the team that, that uh, the president-elect is uh, going to name. I guess my question to you is what approach do you believe that the new administration will take towards Russia? Uh, what strategic goals do you think they'll have? And do you think there'll be a shift in, uh, in the policy direction towards Russia uh, by this new administration? Thank you. Look, it's a good question, uh, Jim. I think, again, the priority in the short run will be to nail down the, the nuclear agreement to extend it. Then there'll be several years where one could try to resolve some of the uh, outstanding issues that weren't covered by the by the uh, agreement. I think in many areas there aren't going to be breakthroughs with Russia in terms of uh, Ukraine. Uh, in terms, of, you know, I think the emphasis you know, we'll, we'll be looking for ways to help them. We'll be looking for ways to help uh, NATO. I think things will get worse in the area of criticizing the Russians over political and human rights issues. And I think you know, this question of uh, Russian behavior in, in cyberspace and, uh, and so forth, what we don't know, at least I haven't seen, is whether what they did began and ended with espionage, in which case it was a dramatic hit on us, but I would say shame on us for making it possible, or whether it went beyond espionage and whether they have inserted uh, malware and the like that would actually have operational consequences either now or if certain contingencies ever materialize. And uh, as bad as the espionage is, it's qualitatively different from the latter. So I think uh, in the human rights area and in the cyber area, we're going to have real, real differences with, uh, with Russia. So all things being equal, I think it's going to be a scratchier relationship and you're going to have none of the personal dimension between the president and between President Biden and, and, and President Putin, where though you may have something you didn't have quite as much of is a more normal kind of what you're doing, more of just a day-to-day -day, uh, diplomatic set of interactions. Because uh, you know, less will happen at the presidential level. And I think it may, in that sense, you know, I never thought doing diplomacy with Russia was a was a favor. I always thought it was a diplomacy was a tool that we that we employ. So I could actually see more regular diplomatic interaction uh, between the, the two governments, even if there's less high level interaction. We'll take the next question from Mansoor Shams. 
Hi, uh, Mansoor Shams, uh, founder of uh, MuslimMarine.org. Um, I'm a, a Pakistani-born uh, American immigrant uh, who ran away from Pakistan for exactly the sort of things that I am seeing uh, in DC today. Uh, maybe it's the immigrant in me, uh, but I feel we have this mindset in the United States that what happens out there in perhaps a third world country can't happen here, it's impossible. So I'm not that optimistic right now. And with that said, um, and with two weeks still remaining in uh, President, President Trump's presidency, uh, why and how are you so content uh, that we will have a peaceful transfer of power without any more curveballs given how many in the GOP, in the House, in the Senate uh, have been complicit even as of today in promoting this widespread voter fraud theories and so on. And lastly, how do you prevent another attack on this uh, fragile democracy? Had the House or Senate been significantly GOP, could this election have been overturned? Um, and if so, how do we pre prevent that from happening in the future? Thank you. Look, it's a really important set of questions. And if nothing else, the last few years should have taught us to be wary of our own assumptions and to be wary of uh, givens and ruling things out because things have happened that were never on, uh, you know, none of us had imaginations that foresaw where exactly we are. Maybe I'm naive, but I am hoping that today was so horrific that there will be a bit of a coming back from the brink uh, because we are at something of a, of a brink. So I do think that um, it will, you know, I think the political process will resume. And I think that we will, we will get through this. I think there's real logistical issues with reestablishing order and security and over the Capitol and there'll be legal issues and all that, but let, let, that's not my expertise. Let me take your question in a slightly different direction. What this says to me, and it's a moment initially for soul searching, and then we've really, we've got to do a lot about it as a society is that a lot of the things that we thought we could take for granted about the resilience and robustness of our democracy, that turns out not to be so. And then the question is, how do we get here? And yes, one could point fingers at the sitting president, but I would simply say that may be necessary, but it's not sufficient. Because the question is, why did what, why is what he has done uh, had such uh, impact and such effect? So I, I actually think this is a time for soul searching and probably for some type of a, a national effort to identify, and it could deal with everything from uh, the absence of civics being taught in many of our uh, schools, to how we regulate or don't social uh, media, to how we structure our politics in many ways, from funding to gerrymandering and you know, the weakening of the middle, what have you. I just think that if we're lucky enough to get through this, and I'm still optimistic we will, that we ought not to simply say, well, it happened once, it can never happen again. I think we ought to take this as a, as a warning shot across our bow collectively. And we had better think about what we need to do to make sure nothing like this ever, ever happens, uh, ever happens again. Let me just add that um, to answer your question, for a coup to occur or anything like that, you in, invariably have the military supporting you. And in this case, I think the military, to its credit, has indicated it's not getting involved. Uh, in terms of the politicians on Capitol Hill, I think some of them thought it was a bit of a game to play to their base. I think it got out of control. And I think that they realized that now that maybe they went too far in encouraging this. But I, do, I don't think anything other than Biden being sworn in peacefully on January 20th is going to occur. Uh, we've gone through a stress test. It was a very serious stress test. And while people do not want to give Donald Trump credit for putting us in this stress test, I do think that in the next year or two, people will say, what can we do to make the democracy work better? We saw what some of the flaws are that the founding fathers didn't intend to happen. And maybe there will be some ways to improve this so that a future stress test won't even come close to what this one did. We'll take the next question from John Sullivan. Well, thank you very much for a great presentation and amen to much, much of what you've said. And Richard, I sure hope you write up your, uh, an article about your focus on 
the direction we ought to go with innovation and technology and energy and all the rest of it. I think that's you're, you're right on track with that. I mean, it's what we did with Texas Instruments and the Moonshot and everything else that spun off a huge number of industries. We need to do that again. But my question really is building on this, this question about uh, American democracy and foreign policy. The administration has uh, at least indicated or hinted at that they would like to form something like a democracy 10 group or a group of democracies to re-engage the idea of democracy support or democracy promotion, a term I don't particularly like, but democracy uh, development around the world. Um, do you think we, that is even realistic anymore? Can we take that stand now, given what's happened in the last week. And, you know, hopefully it does play out to a Joe, a Joe Biden. And we can then take the position of saying, yes, this was a stress test for our democracy. We got through it. So now let's get together and all of us build together. Is that possible? I have two reactions, John. One is it's going to be several years before we are going to be in a position to uh, give anyone a lecture about democracy and the rule of law. You've got to walk the walk before you talk the talk. And um, whatever else we are tonight, we're not a shining city on a hill. So it's some time before we're going to be able to do that. We've got to, you know, in the, to switch metaphors, physician, heal thyself. We've got to address and heal what has clearly gone deeply, deeply wrong with uh, aspects of our society here at, uh, here, here at homes. Uh, putting on my foreign policy hat for a second, my enthusiasm for groups like networks of democracies is always finite. Uh, most of the work that needs to be done in the world, we need non-democracies to participate, whether it's uh, you know, a, a China or, or, or Russia or some other countries. So I always thought it was an odd setting. If, the, if there's a narrow purpose of it, which is to promote democracy, again, I think the best thing you can do is promote it by your example. So you could show that democracies uh, grow at higher rates economically. They deal better with uh, infectious uh, disease. They can, they can resolve their, their, their problems better than uh, others and so forth. Uh, active democracy promotion, I'm not against it. And I think there's, there's a place for it in the, in the world of information in particular. I think we, we should think about what it is we, we communicate and, and the rest. There may be ways, ways to promote civil society around the world and so forth. But for, for the foreseeable future, uh, I really do think we're in, a, in that we're in, we're in a foreign policy begins at home moment. And we've got to, we've got to write our own ship uh, before we can, we can re resume that sort of a, a global role. Richard, um, we are out of time, and I would like to uh, remind people that January the 13th, next Wednesday, we will have a discussion of uh, civic participation in education. It's, uh, a, a, it's a conversation will be called A More Perfect Union, a conversation on civic participation in education. It's a daughters and sons event. So if you have daughters and sons who would like to learn about this, uh, Richard Haas will be um, presenting a discussion, uh, we're presiding over a discussion with three experts on that subject. And I highly recommend it for those who would like to have their children or grandchildren learn, learn a little bit more about civic participation education. With that, uh, we reached our hour uh, that we- David, could, could I just intervene for one minute? Go ahead. And prevail upon people. We were gonna to begin today's meeting rather differently when we, before the events became obvious. And we were going to begin it with a, a conversation about this being the start of the centennial year, the 100th anniversary of the creation of the Council on Foreign Relations. And we put up an entire website devoted to it. And we're going to be doing all sorts of events uh, relating to it, conversations about foreign policy we got, and so forth. So it's, it's and, but the most important thing I just wanted to communicate now, we're going to continue doing what I think is most important, which is we will... Uh, we will speak truth to power. We will have fidelity to facts. We'll remain a, a serious place, a serious resource for you, our members, and for others across the society and government and classrooms and churches and synagogues and mosques where they know they can with confidence turn in order to get serious, nonpartisan, independent, authoritative analysis. And that is my and our commitment to, to all of you. 
Okay, uh, thank you, Richard, for a very interesting conversation. And I wanna thank all the members for participating and thank those who had a chance to ask questions for doing so and uh, continue to support the council. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you, David.